0: If your Bibles with you, it would be helpful if you would turn to the Gospel of John. We will eventually be reading a portion from John's Gospel, chapter 20. John's Gospel, chapter 20. As you're turning there, let me uh, just provide a, a little introduction. The author of this Gospel is named as John. And he is providing a document to be read by people who have heard about Jesus and are not convinced that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And today we come to, if you're thinking in terms of a court submission, today we're coming to the point where John is concluding his arguments, and presenting as final evidence to the readers of his gospel that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, This gospel is a selected biography of Jesus. Not everything that Jesus said and done is contained here. John, being an eyewitness of all that Jesus said and and done, uh, did amassed evidence that under the direction of God the Holy Spirit to present it to a future generation who would read this. And uh, he designed his gospel in a very uh, uh, systematic way. The first chapter is an introductory or what we call a prologue. The next 11 chapters contain stories whereby Jesus, through his teaching and miracles, is proving himself to be the Son of God. The next eight chapters include the final days, the arrest and eventual crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And then chapter 21 is a is what we would call an epilogue. It's, it's a concluding. It's, 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 it's adding evi- evidence to, well, what happened to him and what happened to Peter and what happened to the rest of the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead. So today we're, we're currently looking at John's submission, the evidence of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus of Nazareth after he died and he rose again. The first eyewitness was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. We talked about that account last Sunday. The second eyewitness that only Matthew records, because he's recording... Uh, what he saw in his perspective. It's not contrary, it's just it's embellishing, it's, it's making the story fuller when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Matthew says that Jesus also appeared to the other women who were with Mary Magdalene. So that's a, a significant part of the story. So the other women that were with Mary also witnessed the resurrected body of Christ. And then Luke records two other witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. We often refer to them in the church as the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Um, And Luke only records Jesus' appearance to them. And Luke also records uh, 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 an appearance of Jesus that... For some reason, and, and again, I'm somewhat astounded because he's such a significant character, but after Jesus appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus, he appeared only to Peter. <laughs> and if I was Peter, I would have, well, I'd have a book out by now and I'd be interviewed on Christian TV and, and all kinds of things. Like, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me, if you don't mind me just uh, reminiscing a bit, It's interesting to me that some of the most significant spiritual encounters by people in the Bible are little known of. They don't make much of them. Paul records an account where he actually was carried in body into a visionary context into the heavens. And he never said much about it. And Peter had a private, interview with Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and it's only just mentioned. I wonder if we can learn from that, (laughs) that some of the most significant spiritual events that occur in a person's life are not things to be broadcast and not things to be exposed in ways where a person can become proud and arrogant about their experience. I wonder if we can learn something from that. And then today we're going to read about the fifth and sixth appearance of Jesus, first to disciples and then to a guy by the name of Thomas who was also a disciple. So that brings me to John 20, and we're going to read verses 19 to 29. On the evening of that day... Even so, I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe." I've created three headings for these, this passage. And the three headings are all start with the letter C. The first is confirmation. The second is commission. And the third is confession. I decided to be a very typical Baptist preacher this morning three points, three alliterated points. The first one, confirmation, the second, commission, and the third, confession. So let's look at, first of all, what I've labeled confirmation. It's Sunday evening. Remember that The ladies saw the resurrected Jesus on Sunday morning. It is now Sunday evening of that day. Their leader, Jesus, had been crucified. They were living under fear. So they were behind locked doors. There was ten of them. Thomas wasn't there, remember. And, of course, Judas had died. So there's ten disciples behind locked doors. And just as Jesus, and this is the words I'm using, just as Jesus dematerialized while bound with grave clothes and then suddenly materialized again outside of the grave clothes, such that the witnesses of the empty tomb All they saw was perfectly laid out grave clothes just as they would have been on a body. So that event where Jesus dematerialized and materialized and came through the clothes, he did the same thing to these disciples, locked in a room. Can you imagine? You're sitting around doing whatever you're doing. And through the locked doors is standing Jesus, the Christ, your Messiah, your teacher. And Jesus looks at them and says, peace be with you. He says that three times in the passage I, meant, I read. and It must have some significance. Peace be with you. On one level, it's normal. It's a normal Hebrew greeting on one level. If you travel in the Middle East, whether you're you're in an Islamic country or a Jewish country, you will have a greeting similar to the one that Jesus gave. He would have said to them in Hebrew, and you'll hear this when you go to the Middle East, shalom aleichem, may God be with you. You'll hear that. But, you know, there may be a more significant significance to this greeting than just that it was a common greeting in the day. Dr. D.A. Carson points out the fact that in Hebrew, the word shalom, which means peace, really is a word that covers the full extent of God's promised, blessing upon his people. It was understood by the disciples of Jesus when he said shalom that he was communicating to them a blessing that accomplished all their salvation. To to try to put this in a way that may be easier to understand, if a if one Jew greeted another and said, Shalom or Shalom Aleikum, they weren't just saying, Have a good day. They were saying, May all of God's promises and blessings be upon you through to the end when the Messiah will reign in peace over the earth and all His promises are accomplished. Does, do you understand that? It was a term that was full. It was a term that started with knowing God and ended with with the full eschatological completion of all of God's people living with God in fullness and in fruitfulness on this earth in the new heaven and the new earth, the accomplished Messiah's reign. That's what they were bestowing on the person. So To say shalom wasn't like we would say in our culture, hey, how you doing? It was was more as all of God's salvation blessings be upon you in the full accomplishment of those blessings. So from that vantage point, when Jesus appeared through the door and the startled disciples looked at him and he in his own words said, peace be unto you. No wonder, the Scripture says, when they saw him, they were glad. No wonder that they responded that way. The late Grant Osborne uh, says the same thing in his commentary on John. Jesus is fulfilling his own promise of eschatological, that word means end times, The end, Jesus is fulfilling his own promise of eschatological peace in keeping with Isaiah 9-6, which says that a child will be born to you who is the Prince of Peace. This is a significant greeting by our Lord. Peace be unto you. And it's still true today, beloved. It's still true today. Today that when men and women and boys and girls by faith meet Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, he promises them peace. Paul said in Romans 5, therefore since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. That means that those who come to Christ in faith receive the fullness of His salvation blessing. It's still true today. It comes as an accomplished fact to those who trust Christ. It's finished. There's nothing more that you have to do than believe it. And God's peace can be yours, the fullness of His peace. Faith in Christ brings a relationship of peace with God. But faith in Christ also leads to a mission. That's the second point. Did you remember the second C? Commissioning. The first confirmation, Jesus has appeared. The second is commissioning. Commissioning. Verses 21 and 20 to 23. When Pete... Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. I I kept looking at it saying, that that isn't right. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any... They are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You know, on the surface, this isn't a very difficult passage to understand. We have a statement of our Lord pointing to what will be realized in some days later as what we know as the Great Commission where he sends his apostles into the world. He says, as I've been sent, you're going to be sent. He says, you're going to need the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. He says, you're to go into all the world and preach, as Luke says in his account, preach forgiveness of sins to all people. That's what Jesus is saying to them. The three elements of the commission. You're being sent. You need the Holy Spirit. And you need to preach forgiveness to people. People can have forgiveness. Men and women and boys and girls all over the world can have forgiveness of sins. What students of the Bible struggle with is not those basic things. Is the fact that this is happening in a locked room right after on the resurrection Sunday. And... Later, we're going to read in Acts 1 and Acts 2 that it happened with all the disciples on Mount of Olives, and what Bible, school, Bible students struggle with is, what is this and what is that? Some even say, well, this was, a, um, this was their own private commissioning, and the other is a public commissioning. I don't think it's that difficult. I think Scholars tend to make it more difficult than it needs to be. Everything that Jesus said to them is in the future tense. As I was sent, I am sending you. He breathed on him and said, when I send you, so to speak, and I'm inserting that, when I send you, receive the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, he's saying, when you tell people in the gospel that Jesus will forgive them, they're forgiven. And if they refuse to hear the gospel, if they have refused to trust in Jesus, they won't be forgiven. There's nothing in here about the church having authority to forgive sin and not forgive sin on its own authority. <clears throat> this church in itself, as a church, has no authority to forgive sins. And has no authority not to forgive sins. The authority to forgive sins comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's based upon the fact if an individual will trust in God and ask for that forgiveness, they will be forgiven. If they refuse to do so, they will not be forgiven. There's more, by the way, I won't, just as a marginal note for you, there's, I go into more detail because there is, there's a Hebrew way of writing that John uses. It's in, in technical language, it's called a prolipsis. It's a way of writing about things happening now, but they're really future. It's common, common device in Hebrew writing. And I've, I've put more of a discussion... In my notes, they get posted on the website. And I did not want to take the time to uh, have a Hebrew grammar lesson with you this morning. And many of you are praising God for that and thankful for that. But by the way, that is why I post my transcripts on the website. There's another reason, by the way, and, and most of you do not care to even know what I'm going to say. But there's a huge scandal in the U.S., and it's in the Southern Baptist churches in the U.S., which amount for a lot of churches. But a very significant uh, speaker in the Southern Baptist Convention, while preaching, actually... uh, took a sermon preached by a guy that some of you know some some of the ladies studied his book jd greer and 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 somebody on youtube took this one speaker preaching and then jd greer's sermon and it's just identical like it is wrong 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 but i don't want to be the kind of preacher that is stopping every two minutes telling you where i got my information So I put it on the website which is footnoted and cited and you'll read one of my notes someday and you say, you know, Jim McClellan isn't that smart. (laughs) He gets all his stuff from other guys. But to be serious, I want to be honest with you and I want you to know that, that it is wrong to steal another man's material, another woman's material and speak it and cite it as if it's your own. And I don't ever want to be accused of that. I'm very sensitive to that. Just like a student in academics would fail to plagiarize, a pastor, I believe, would lose all integrity to plagiarize. It's called stealing. And so uh, I'm very cautious about that. So that's the reason you know, uh, I do that so that everything is cited and, and you know that I'm really not that brilliant at all. I stand on the shoulders of godly men and women uh, who are a great help to my study and my preaching. Anyway, back to this. Why did we digress? What is true in a preparatory way in this room with Jesus saying, I'm going to send you... I want you to receive the Holy Spirit, and I want you to preach forgiveness of sins. What is true in this room with 10 disciples is actually formalized days later on the Mount of Olives, recorded in Acts chapter 1, where all the disciples are present. And Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. So this commissioning is, 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 is Christ's way of, of being a, a, a symbolic or a picture of what was going to take place later in reality. Confirmation, the ten disciples saw the risen Jesus. Commission, the ten Disciples got a hint of what's going to happen next. And finally, confession. We learn that Thomas was not in the room the first time Jesus came. And we learn why. We learn why. We learn that Thomas had already said to the disciples, unless I see Christ, unless I put my hand in the nail's the, whole, the nail-scarred hands, unless I put my finger in his side where the spear entered, I will not believe that he's alive. But eight days later, Thomas was with the disciples in the, the or Again, Jesus says, peace be unto you. And then he spots Thomas. Oh, I would have loved to have been there. Wouldn't have loved to have been there. Imagine Thomas there. Do you Imagine what Thomas was thinking. As Jesus appeared, and he didn't do it this way. Jesus is far nicer a person than I will ever be, but if it was me, I'd go, come here, Thomas. <laughs> Quit hiding over there. And he said, Thomas, put your finger in the nail holes. Thomas put your finger in the nails and the spear in the hole in the side of my where the spear went in. There's no record that Thomas did. <laughs> I wouldn't. Would you? I wouldn't. Have. There's no record he actually touched the Lord. What we have recorded for us is that Thomas fell to his knees and said, "My Lord and my God." By the way, just another marginal note. Probably had too too many marginal notes this morning, but just a marginal note. If you ever meet someone who says the Bible never says that Jesus is God, take them here. Thomas falls before Jesus of Nazareth and says to Jesus of Nazareth, my Lord and my God. There's no clear verse in the Bible that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, that's important for you this morning, but it was incredibly important for John's package of testimony that he was bringing to these people in Asia Minor who would read this. There, Thomas, one of the disciples of Jesus Christ, proclaims him not only as the risen Savior, but he's Lord and God. It's a great, great place to take people. This confession of Thomas, my Lord and my God, became the confession of the early church. Dr. Steve Lawson says this, and this is a fairly lengthy quote. I quote, This is the cornerstone truth of all Christianity, Jesus is Lord. It was the earliest creedal confession of the Christian faith to say Jesus is Lord. When someone was baptized, they would say, Jesus is Lord. We do that continually today in so many words. When someone is baptized, I ask them the question, do you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord? We still do that today. This confession of Thomas is still the confession of the church. In fact, Lawson goes on to say that when Christians would meet each other on the street, they would greet each other, each other with Jesus is Lord. Can you imagine us doing that? Can you imagine? Wouldn't that be great to do, to meet each other in, on the street or in a store or someone and just instead saying, hey, Jim, how about... Jesus is Lord. They weren't ashamed of it. They weren't embarrassed. It really became the signature statement of the first century church, unquote. The name that the Holy Spirit uses in the Greek language here for Lord is the name Kyrios, And Kyrios means words like, Master, owner, ruler, supreme one. So when you and I say Jesus is Lord, we're saying that he is the supreme ruler and master over all things. And when we say Jesus is my Lord, when we say Jesus is my Lord, We're saying that Jesus is our owner. He's our master. He is the supreme ruler of my life. Paul said, if anyone confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, they shall be saved. Beloved, if you're here this morning and and you don't know what it means to be a Christian or how to become a Christian, that sums it up in one short paragraph. To be a Christian is someone who acknowledges that Jesus Christ is their owner and master and Lord of their life. And to become a Christian is to yield to the truth, submit to the truth that He is Lord. We sang that in our One of the songs we sang, the chorus, he is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. He is Lord. And as Paul said in Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every human being will confess him as Lord. The best time to do that, that you would be saved, is to do it today. Do it today. He is Lord. How many times I heard my daddy say, He is Lord. You cannot make him Lord. He is Lord. But you can surrender to his lordship. My father would be responding to people who say, Make him Lord. You can't. He's already Lord. He's already the supreme ruler. He rose from the dead. He's already the master. But you in your heart this morning can say, I will acknowledge that, and I will yield and surrender to him as my Lord. So there we have John's final uh, submission to the court of evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And he shows us through the confirmation of the ten disciples He shows us through the commissioning of the disciples, a little insight into the commissioning of the disciples. And most importantly, he shows us through the confession of Thomas, doubting Thomas, who saw his hands and feet and his side and said, my Lord and my God, how do we apply this to us this morning? Well, I got good news. Jesus already applies it for us. I hope you have your Bible still open and you're looking at John chapter 20, and I want you to see verse 29. This is an exciting application. I'm so glad to give Christ glory for this application. This is an application is what I want you to think about and take home with you. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? And then Jesus says this, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Have you believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Jesus is speaking to you this morning. This is mind-blowing. This was... This happened 2,000 years ago, and Jesus, through the living Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, is coming through the pages of this book, and He's saying to you, blessed are those who believe and who have not seen. He is speaking to you today. He is talking to you. You want to hear, do you, do you hear Jesus talk to you? Just read these words. Blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That is a direct word to you. You can go home today and have lunch, and someone can say to you, so what did the preacher say today? I don't know, but Jesus spoke to me today, and he said, I'm blessed. This is not some kind of hairy-fairy prosperity message that that you get health and wealth and all the happiness in the world. This is the Lord Jesus, the risen Christ, saying to men and women who in the future will believe, having never seen Him, that you're blessed. That you're blessed. I'm kind of saddened by the way some of our Bible translations translate the word blessed. There's some translations that Translate the word blessed as happy. Trust me, this is way more than happy. Blessedness in the Bible, and I reach all the way back to Numbers 6, 24 to 20, 26, I reach all the way back there. Blessing in the Bible means you have the proximity of God with you. It means that you have the protection of God around you, and it means that you have the favor of God directed towards you. It's a lot more. Oh, boy, I'm going to get in trouble. It's a lot more than what people thought the prayer of Jabez was. Do you guys remember that back then? I disappointed a camp one time because they asked me to come preach on the prayer of Jabez. And I taught them what real blessing was, and it had nothing to do with land or cars or money or health. And they're very disappointed in the fact that I thought that this was the fullness of spiritual blessing belongs to you. Do you know what, brothers and sisters? When you read this, blessed are those who have not seen but believe, you ought to be thinking Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Blessed are you because you have been chosen before the foundations of the world. Blessed are you because your sins have been forgiven. Blessed are you because you have access to the Father. Blessed are you because you've been adopted into the Beloved. Blessed are you that you have an inheritance undefiled waiting for you. Blessed are you. That's what Jesus is saying, and he's saying it to us this morning as Gentile Christians they, everyone else has seen him. We haven't. But many of you have believed. And Jesus is saying to you, you're blessed. You're blessed. I'm with you and I'll never leave you. I will never turn away from doing you good. My favor is always upon you. You're blessed. Beloved, can you, can you take that home and, and rejoice in that? Can, is there anyone here that could just get a little excited about the fact that 2,000 years ago, as the omniscient Son of God looked through the channels of time and saw you and said, Blessed are you who have not seen me, and yet you believe. What if you haven't believed this morning? What if you've never recognized Jesus as the Lord of the universe, someone to be submitted to? The late Dr. John Owen, I'm paraphrasing this because he wrote in Elizabethan language, said, Why will you die? I'm speaking to someone who has never, ever trusted Christ. The question is, why will you die? Why will you perish? Why do you not care about your own soul? Do you think you can endure the judgment of God? Jesus says to you, look to me and be saved. Come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. Come to me, he pleads. Lay aside all your procrastination and delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at your door. If you're not a Christian, I plead with you to bow before Christ this morning as your Lord and trust him as your Savior. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for this entire testimony of John. Written so that people could read it, and by the aid of the Holy Spirit, they would come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and believing they would have life in your name. Thank you for this final submission of evidence that is so profound. Thank you for Thomas. Lord, we confess that we're more like Thomas often than we are like other disciples. And yet it took just a word from you to drop him to his knees and confess you as Lord. Father, would you speak to someone listening here this morning, either online or in the auditorium? Would you speak to that person who has been holding back? They've been procrastinating. And we thank you, Lord, for the great benediction in this passage. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will see you face to face. Until then, we love you, having never seen you. We serve you, having never seen you. We surrender to you, having never seen you. But We believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me and allow me to pronounce another great benediction upon your life? It's my privilege, brothers and sisters, to commend you to God. No greater person to commend you to. I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able. This alone is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with the saints. Go in peace. God bless you.